got to the age where I have to take my glasses everywhere, so in case my sight fails. I think there are two great ways that we dampen the passion of our experience of God's love in our hearts. And they're actually summed up in that that song we sang. But the first is that we, we fail to grasp that our sins, they are many. And that, that God has a settled, right, pure anger towards all that is wrong, all that is unloving, all that is evil, all that is wicked in his world, and therefore all that is in us like that. And we lose sight of how fearful it is to be under God's right, settled anger. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think we fail to grasp that his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We fail to grasp the enormity of the compassion of God, how much he's concerned to save people. And we see both perfectly revealed in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross. We see the horror of hell displayed in the suffering of Christ. But also we see the beauty of love, seeing in his willingness to go through hell for us. And the great news is that Jonah, I think, is a book made to turn cold hearts, to change people who've lost sight of those two things. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I mean, it is, it is a brilliant biblical box set. You'd need incredible CGI if you were going to put this on. It's sort of Game of Thrones quality. You've got to have terrifying storms and huge people swallowing fish. What we've done so far in Jonah, previously we've met Jonah. He's one of God's people, a prophet. But he's a man who appears to have lost grasp on the enormity of God's judgment and God's compassion. We also met some uh, pagan sailors in chapter 1. And they seem to have a far better understanding of the Lord than his own prophet Jonah. But when Jonah is hurled into the sea at his own request, he recognizes he's a man who needs to be rescued. And so in chapter 2, we saw as the water fills his lungs, as the seaweed wraps itself around his head, well, he cries out to God. And he experiences God's grace again. His undeserved love. He's a man who deserved death in chapter 2 and is given life. And like the whole Bible, uh, Jonah is a book firstly written to to God's people. So if if you're a Christian here this morning, Jonah is your spiritual ancestor. And as we look at Jonah's reactions and we look at the reactions of the, the pagan nation around him, we're supposed to do a compare and contrast. We're supposed to see what we're like. If you're not yet a Christian, it's a fantastic book to be looking at because it does make very clear those two vital things that you need to understand about the Christian faith, that we believe our sins, our wickedness, our evil, our rebellion, our lack of love, they are many, but God's mercy, it is more. And the first thing we see about this book which in chapter 3 shows us uh, God's grace turns people's hearts we see God's grace goes God's grace goes because at the end of chapter 2 Jonah in the middle of the fish he he made a pledge do you remember it chapter 2 verse 9 but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I vowed I'll make good I will say salvation comes from the Lord and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
Now, we don't know whether he wiped himself down and uh, God spoke to him again there and then immediately or whether he went home for a shower and there's a bit of a pause between chapter 2 and 3. But if as chapter 3 was being read, you had some deja vu, you were thinking, this is quite like chapter 1. Well, you were supposed to. Because look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah for a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, now God's grace means we worship one who is the God of second chances, of third chances, of fourth chances, of fifth chances. Of You get the picture? God's word comes to Jonah a second time. And the message is the same. Arise, go to the most powerful pagan city in the known world, the place ruled over by kings who have brutally oppressed the nations around them. And tell them what I say. But whereas in chapter 1, Jonah went in the opposite direction. He got in a ship to the back of beyond as fast as he could. Look what he does now. Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. You see, God's grace changes people's hearts. Jonah's heart has been turned. The Bible's littered with examples. Uh, The Assyrian general, Nahum, he he lived a bit before this book. He's changed from smasher of God's people to worshipper of the God of Israel. Or go on uh, uh, 700 plus years. The apostle Paul changed from persecutor of the church to preacher of the good news about Jesus. God's grace turns people's hearts. It changes people. And Jonah has been saved so he now obeys the word of the Lord. So if you're, if you're a Christian here this morning, let me ask you a question. Do you remember the, the, the first time you were really overwhelmed by your sin? You, you fe- it, it sort of felt like an incomparable burden to you. Maybe it filled your life in the same way that, that the water fills Jonah's lungs. And then do you remember the joy when when you first realized that it had been poured out onto Christ on the cross? That that in love, as he stretched out his arms, he didn't stretch them out just so that they could be nailed to a cross for you. He, He stretched them out as he surrendered himself that he might receive his own righteous anger, the 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 right punishment of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And do you remember the time you first drank in that extraordinary love? In the same way that that Jonah must have drunk in the air as as he suddenly found himself in the belly of a fish, fish gasping a new life into his lungs. I can't quite remember uh, the emotions on on the night that I became a Christian. I do remember having to go to the front of a meeting. I don't know why, I just, just had to go. I do remember having to pray. I do remember having to talk to the, the guy who gave the bloke, uh, gave the, the bloke who gave the talk. And I do remember how I reacted as I went away. My mate, Tony, Tony had to hear this. It was, it was such good news. He had to come with me. Grace drives you. I was chatting to a bloke recently at a, at a conference. He'd, he'd become a Christian when he was taken to a 1989 Billy Graham rally at Wembley. And the next day, he and another bloke, this is the next day, hired a 53-seater coach. They went around their small village in Sussex, inviting people until they'd filled it. They took them all off to Billy Graham the following night. 
And he, he said that some of them, not everyone, some of them became Christians. Some of them are still going with Christ today. Grace turns your heart, and it goes. Hearts that experience God's love share God's love. Grace goes. Not just because it changes us. No, grace goes because actually that's who God is. You see, our translation says in verse 3, Nineveh was a, a very large city. Literally, the original says, Nineveh was a city great to God. It's more than just a a comment on the size of the place. It's a hint. God cares about a pagan metropolis. See, God is the great giving God. God's gifts are given always to be handed on. He cares about London with all the crazy ideas, with all the weird and wonderful practices with all the dreadful and perverse things that go on, God cares. And he's the great sending God. His saving message is never meant to stop with us. Uh, The preacher, Tim Keller, puts it in his little book on Jonah like this. Mission is not for the spiritually elite or the well-rested or people with the gift of the gab or for outgoing personalities or for those with theological training. It is for every person that belongs to him. It is because God is by nature ascending God. He never calls us to bless without also sending us out to be a blessing to others. That's why we go. Because we know nothing beats knowing Jesus. It's why we have a pie night or a quiz night. It's why we put on youth and kids work because we've experienced this grace and it forces us out. God is the gracious God who sends us to others with this message. And God's grace goes as God's word is proclaimed. Because here's the second thing, God's word works. I mean, Jonah's got He's got quite a job on his hand, hasn't he? We, we've seen this is a, it's a big city. It takes three days to go through. That doesn't mean it's like three days walk wide because that would make it bigger than London today. It's more that it took three days for a decent visit, you know, to see the sights and the suburbs of, of Nineveh. It was that sort of place. Three days to walk around. And that's uh, three days, interestingly. Do you know when three days is also mentioned in Jonah? That's, that's how long he spends in the belly of a fish. It's how long God gives him to think through his life and his disobedience. But but the inhabitants of Nineveh, they don't actually need three days. Look at verse 4 with me. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's it's not a comfortable message, is it? I mean, 40 days in, in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament is all to do with God judging. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights when he he flooded the earth in the days of Noah. Uh, The Israelites, his people, had to wander around the desert for 40 years when they rebelled against him. And it's not not just 40 is a, a number that spells trouble. The word overthrown that we've got here... Well, it's it's the word used to describe what happens to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis... Two cities that are so evil, the Lord literally wipes them off the face of the earth with, as the old translation says, fire and brimstone. 
This is not a message out of how to make friends and influence people, is it? I mean, it's not the first thing I choose to say to the, to the very secure and successful Assyrians. I mean, they, they've not been overthrown by anyone recently. They're actually used to calling the shots in, in other people's lives. I mean, I expect little old Jonah, the best he was hoping for was to get away with his life, being laughed out of town. Small-time prophet from a small-time nation with a politically incorrect and tactless message about a God they don't know, they don't care about, and certainly don't worship who's going to bring terrible judgment upon your city in 40 days. You, you want to try that? You know, walk through Chessington and after the service? In an end, we don't know when, but there's, there's terrible judgment coming upon the earth. But, but as God's messenger, Jonah's not at liberty to change the message. Now listen to, to Keller again. Jonah did not become free to select for himself what he would say to men. He did not go to them to tell them about his experiences. He did not decide the content of his preaching. Thus, our witness is fast bound to the word of God. And sometimes it's only the uncomfortable truth that works. I was uh, chatting to a friend who's a minister in Hadley Wood. Hadley Wood is like the Oxshot of North London. Uh, lots of, uh, if, if Oxshot's full of Chelsea fo- footballers, Hadley Wood's full of Arsenal footballers. And he was saying that if he preached in Hadley Wood a a message about how you need the God-shaped hole in your life filled, or how Jesus brought you more satisfaction, the reply he got more often than not was, what do you mean satisfaction? I retired from working in the bank, age 55. I paid off my mortgage years ago. I'm happily married for the last 40 years. My children are both at top universities. I like to tend my garden, play golf three times a week, and spend the weekends on my yacht. What do you mean, satisfaction? See, the gospel, first and foremost, isn't about satisfaction. It's about salvation. It's a message that there is a judgment to come, that all people are guilty, that God's punishment is terrible, but that his passionate love is greater. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And he offers permanent forgiveness to all who will call on him and turn to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sounds weird. It does sound weird. I was doing this. Uh, We recommend people have a go at this word one-to-one, just taking uh, yourself through a copy of John's Gospel. I was doing this on Wednesday in the sun with a mate in his garden. He's not a Christian. I found these words coming out of my mouth as we were reading word one-to-one together. A day will come when he will raise all people, the living and the dead, to judgment. Everyone. That includes relatives, business colleagues, people from every religion, you and me, the living and the dead. And the result will be judgment, leading either to life or condemnation. And I was thinking, as I read this out, this sounds bonkers. I was. He's never going to share a meal deal with me again, this bloke. But, but you know what he said? He said, oh, oh okay, I can, I can see that. He didn't say, what must I do to be saved? But he said, okay, I, I can see that. And then I tentatively said, when we got to the end of the chapter, do, do, do you want to meet up again? Thinking, no. And he said, yes. Because look what happens on on day three, one day into Jonah's three-day mission trip. Verse five, the Ninevites 
believed God. See, God's word works. It changes lives. We have to speak it. Oh, that's not easy. But, but he does the rest. These four words, can I tell you, they just don't make sense. They don't, these words do not make sense. The Ninevites believed God. Okay? That's like saying, the Saudi Arabian monarchy has converted en masse to Christ. Okay? Or, ISIL has renounced violence and become a Christian mission organization in the Syria. That's, that's what these words mean. The Ninevites believed God. That's the scale. It's bonkers. But that's the power of God's word. Isn't that great? London turns to Christ. Well, it did to a certain extent in 1954 in the Harry Gay mission. There's no reason why thousands in London can't turn to Christ again because God's word works. There's hope for our world. However crazy, hope for our culture, however lost, God's word works. And that, that power is demonstrated in a real faith that repents. Here's the third thing to see. Real faith repents. You see, faith in God always takes him at his word. It trusts what he says. That, that's what it is. If you're wondering what faith is, it's not a leap in the dark or believing the unbelievable. It's to trust God for what he says. And that's the same with faith in anyone, isn't it? If I suddenly started shouting, the kitchen's on fire, there's a fire in the kitchen, get out, get out. Clearly, you have no faith in me at all. But, but your belief, your faith in me, your trust of what I say will be shown by your action. And look, look, look how the Ninevites react. Verses 6 to 9 sort of expand on this proclamation. Look at verse 6 with me. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in dust. That's the king of the pagan nation. Do you you remember what the king of Israel is like at this stage? We read about him in 2 Kings 14. Jeroboam II did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But, But here the pagan king bows before the word of God. And and this is repentance from the top down. Sackcloth is not comfy. It's a sign of deep sorrow in the Old Testament. Getting off your throne and sitting down in the dirt is an expression that that you're humbling yourself. You're you're crying to God for mercy. And it is from the top to bottom of society. You see in verse 7, even the animals have to fast. And look, verse 8, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Words and action, hand in hand. Prayer and radical repentance. This is urgent. Lives have to change. Now, evil ways and violence, it it sounds pretty extreme in verse 8, doesn't it? But actually, it's it's just an expression that includes anything that infringes upon people's well-being. This is simply about giving up the selfishness that that creates inequality in our society. This isn't repenting of mugging old ladies in the street. This is repenting of the fact that you will not commit to love your neighbor as yourself. Changed lives and humble hearts. Because, Because anyone can do a bit of sackcloth and ashes, can't we? I mean... 
a lot of religious contrition, we can do that. A lot of world religions do that, a sort of ceremonial misery. They have a sort of deal with God. It goes like this. I do sackcloth and sit in the dust. You do forgiveness and blessing. You see the deal? One thing earns the other. I've now turned to you, God. Your job is to turn to me. It's, it's an easy mindset to, to fall into. The, the sort of, I'll scratch your back. Well, scratch mine in an itchy shirt. God, and then you scratch my back. You do what I've earned. Uh, we twist God's arm. It's the attitude of a, of a person who says, I mean, what's the point of being a Christian when there's so much still wrong in my life? I pray. I'm not healed. My job's miserable, and my kids, they still don't do what I tell them, even though I go to church every Sunday. I'll scratch your back, God, but you've got to scratch mine. But, but that's not real repentance. It's not the effect that God's grace has on hearts. That's actually a repentance of works. I do this, I earn, therefore, blessing from God. There may be hints of that in Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Do you remember from last week? Danny pointed out how Jonah seems quite keen to tell God what he's done. I called out. I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you. I will sacrifice to you. I will pay, says Jonah. Look at all the things I've done. Look at the attitude of the Ninevites in verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Effectively, they say, we have no case to argue. We've got no rights to claim. We've got nothing really to, to win you over, Lord. But you are the God who turns from your anger. That is our only hope. We can't presume upon you. The word compassion there is literally turn. God may relent and turn from his fierce anger because that's what God is like. He says so in the Bible, in Ezekiel 18.32, God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. I uh, watched the film The Way recently with Martin Sheen. Uh, he's a, a sort of driven dentist who's a slightly dysfunctional... No, he's not. He's an eye doctor, isn't he? A driven eye doctor who has a slightly dysfunctional relationship with his academic son... It gets worse when his son packs in his successful career and decides to travel the world. The son dies while doing pilgrimage on the El Camino de Santiago in Spain. Sheen's character goes out to get the body and ends up doing the pilgrimage himself. It's, it's a sort of redemption journey. And the pilgrimage ends at a statue of St. James. And the idea is the pilgrim is supposed to approach the statue on their knees. Well, pretty much every pilgrim walks past, they put their hand in the right spot and just walk on through. But eventually, Sheen, heartbroken, gets down on his knees and shuffles forward, tears streaming down his face, and places his hand on the statue. See, the only way you can approach God is on your knees. Now, that's what the Ninevites show us. That's how they're different from Jonah. Real repentance is one that wants my life to change and realizes that that doesn't mean God owes me anything. But because I am still guilty before him, I've got to come to him on my knees. 
I recognize, even I was talking to a guy in our church about this, who said that for him, recognizing the enormity of God's grace came when he realized even his prayers of repentance, even his saying sorry, was was mixed with selfishness and sin. They weren't pure. You see, real faith repents. It takes God out of his word. It's a heart that wants to change, but it's a heart of deep humility that that knows it deserves nothing from God because it's only when we're in that position that we we truly can grasp the enormity of God's grace because here's the last thing God's grace turns you see if you if you're an Israelite the real surprise comes in verse 10 that's the shock of the chapter look at verse 10 when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. God turns. God, in his grace, turns. It's not actually that his attitude has changed. It's not that he is no longer angry with sin. No, it's that their hearts have been changed, and therefore they are turning from their sin, so he turns from his judgment of them. And here's the problem. This is a bunch of pagans who've just got a reputation of beating up God's people that's what they love doing better than anything else and all the evidence seems to suggest that they remain a thoroughly pagan nation Israel doesn't record in its history that sort of revival breaks out to the north in Assyria in the 8th century BC there's no outbreak of worshipping Israel's God we actually have a hint of that in in the passage just look at verse 2 you'll see as God is spoken about with Jonah, he's the, the Lord. Down in verse 1, actually, the word of the Lord came. Or verse 3, the Lord in capitals. That, that's God's covenant name, his promise name, the name given to his people, Yahweh. But, but with the Ninevites, well, it's just God. Verse 5, they call on God. The general name of God is used when it comes to Nineveh. The general name of any old God it doesn't really appear that they've necessarily come into a relationship with the Lord. It's, it's a very messy conversion story, if it's a conversion story at all. I mean, God's grace is bigger than our doctrine. We want to ask them, now, uh, men of Nineveh, women of Nineveh, do you understand the Bible? Is your faith in the promises of God as revealed through Abraham in the Old Testament? And I think they'd have gone, what promises of God? Promises of God? I don't know. Just don't fancy getting judged. See, it's never someone's knowledge that saves them. It's always God's compassion that saves people. When Jesus spoke about Jonah the prophet, he made just that point. He was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees of his day. They were the religious scholars. They knew their Bibles better than anyone. They'd have won any biblical quiz night you put them in. But they don't come to Jesus. They won't turn to him. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, And an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Greater than Jonah? Greater than Jonah because God's grace is fully and finally revealed in the person of his son, Jesus. He he is the one who turns aside God's righteous punishment. He turns it aside and brings it upon himself. You see, the gospel teaches us it's not that we change and then God loves us. No, it's that God so loved us that he sends his one and only son that the the right anger that is directed towards us on the cross is turned aside to Jesus. That word we sometimes talk about, propitiation, is a word of turning aside God's right anger onto his son. And what was the sign that we know that he was dead and he was buried for three days and then he burst out of the tomb as Jonah burst out of the belly of the fish and therefore we know he offers rescue to all those who will trust in him. He has borne our punishment in our place. We are right with God. You might be asking yourself, well, will, will the men of heaven, will the men of Nineveh be in heaven? Will the men of Nineveh be in heaven? Well, Jonah 2 doesn't tell us. Matthew 12 doesn't tell us. And actually, they're not in the Bible, so we can work out their eternal future. They're in the Bible, so we can be certain of ours. That that we can know there is a God who loves to save. And therefore, he, he gives us grace. He rescues us, but it's always grace to go. And we go with his word, and that word works in people's lives. And he saves those always who have a faith that is expressed in in deep, humble repentance. A humble repentance that realizes there is no hope apart from God's character. That he is compassionate. A humble repentance that, that clings to those two important things that every human being needs to know. You're a great sinner. And God is a great saviour. Or, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. So so let me ask you, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, do you want to come to this God? You might feel, I just don't know much. I mean, I, I am not sure I could pass in terms of the questions about the Christian faith. You don't have to know much. The men of Nineveh, I, I just don't think they knew much. But you you do have to realize that you are in a hopeless situation before a perfect God who holds you to account. And yet he's done everything in his son, Jesus, to make you right with him. That's how much he loves you. And, And if you'll come to him, just talk to him in a simple prayer, acknowledge your helplessness and acknowledge that you're putting your hope in Christ, your promises, the promises that he forgives you now and forever. And for those of us who know Christ, we want to rejoice in this grace, don't we? We want to have confidence in his word. We we want to ensure that we're asking him to give us lives that demonstrate this real repentance. And then we want to go. We want to go because God's grace turns our world on its head. It's expressed beautifully, isn't it, in the, the old hymn, Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, 
or I die. Does Jonah know that? Maybe. Does he feel that? Not yet. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are the gracious God who is the great giver. You gave your one and only son. And through us, you long to give the message of Jesus to others. Please, our Father, therefore give us confidence in your word. Give us hearts that are humble and contrite, broken before you, utterly dependent upon you. And will we know that you are the God who has turned from your anger and turned it upon your son Jesus, that you have done that for us and you will do it for others because of your great love and compassion. And we praise you for that in his precious name. Amen. We're going to sing now of that great salvation that our God has wrought for us in Christ. Let's stand to sing.